Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together today. If you're a guest here, welcome. So glad that you would join us on a rainy Sunday morning. My name's Mark, one of the pastors. And uh, we're in um, a storyline series, which is going through the whole Bible. But before we get into the message, let me just say, last weekend, we had this great marriage weekend. And so, I don't know if you heard, there's 170, so 85 couples that intersected, most from our church. But I remember meeting this couple on Friday night, said, hey, we're kind of in a hard spot in our marriage. And we were, I was online. I saw that you're doing a marriage retreat. And um, so we just came. And this same woman greeted me at the door on Sunday morning as they were leaving. And she said, thank you so much for doing this retreat. There's been a lot of healing that's been going on in our marriage this weekend. And so not everybody was in a crisis mode by any stretch of the imagination. But just a great time to encourage each other to center our lives and our marriages around Christ. So thanks for being part of a church that cares about those things and wants to invest. And for those of you that had a particular part in uh, teaching or planning that, thanks. It was a great, great weekend. So we're in the book of Acts. When you hear the book of Acts, go, why is it called Acts? Because it's describing the Acts of the Apostles. Difference between an apostle and a disciple, they're the same guys. A disciple means followers. We're a follower of Jesus. Apostle means they were commissioned, sent out with a message. It's the acts of the apostle, the disciples of Jesus who now are filled with the Spirit and they're following the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. And so that's the history of the Spirit-filled apostles spreading the good news of God's love for us in Christ to the far reaches of the known world, beyond Jerusalem. It's moving from Jerusalem in the beginning of the book, and it ends with Paul in, of all places, Rome, Italy, at the, at the seat of the Roman Empire. It's moved. And in chapter 8, where we're going to hang out today, we're going to move from Jerusalem to Samaria and the ends of the earth. So there's a, there's a key verse that helps us kind of unpack the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here's what Jesus said, and it goes right along with his great commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're going to pick up uniquely in chapter 8. This is the movement where the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Samaria and then out to the ends of the world. So here's what we know to this point. We know that the church is born, so to speak, and exploding. It's definitely exploding. And we know with the mission of Christ moving forward, we should, not, we should not ever think otherwise that we should expect opposition. That's true for us individually as we seek to center our lives. If you're married, our, our relationship, our family. If you're in business and you have ownership of it, you say, well, I want this business to be God. You should just expect opposition. So there's explosive growth. Thousands are being added to the church. But man, there's real opposition. So in chapter 5, 
There's the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira that is threatening the integrity of the church. In chapter 6, there's racial tension. So now you have this church that's made up of Jewish widows, and there are these Gentile widows. And they're treating the Jewish widows with the highest level of care. And they're neglecting the Gentile widows. And, and there's just sharp division going, hey, what's going on here? And it was a racial divide. There is also explosive growth, and with that, the challenge of leadership. And like, the church is getting so big so fast, and we need more help. And so Peter says, we, we've got to get seven other guys to help out. And they appointed guys like Stephen, who we read about in chapter 6 and 7, and Philip, who we're going to catch up with today in chapter 8. Men who were full of the Spirit, it says in chapter 6, and they were full of faith to, to, to take care of the church and to expand the gospel beyond Jerusalem. So one of the things that catch up when we think about opposition in the early church and opposition throughout the New Testament is, and it's true in the life of Jesus, it's not exclusively true, but predominantly true, that the most opposition that goes against Christ and then it goes against his mission comes, you ready? From religious people. Not like from the secular Romans, not like from this other cult that has nothing to do with God. It comes from religious people who believed in God and believed that they were serving God. That's the opposition. People like Ananias and Sapphira within the church, the Pharisees, the religious leaders like Saul, who's right there when Stephen is martyred and stoned to death. We'll catch up with Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, next week. It's religious leaders, not exclusively, but predominantly. And that's like a big, what? You mean people who would go to church on a Sunday morning on a rainy October? Yeah, those kinds of people. Oh, shoot. Yeah, us, religious people. So that's just good to catch up with. All right. So here's what we're going to notice. That persecution at the end of chapter 8 brings this rapid spread of the gospel where we read about the people scattering with the word. Look at um, verses 1 through 4. It's up on the slide. And Saul approved of their killing him, speaking of Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, underline that word, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered, what'd they do? Preach the word wherever they went. So the title of the message, if you want a title, is Scatter with the Word. And here's what we need to know, is when we scatter with the word, yeah, we, sh we should expect opposition, but that's not the point we're going to look at in chapter 8. When we scatter with the word, expect that the gospel will cross any and every barrier. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to the classroom tomorrow, when you go do life with whoever you are called to do life with, expect that as you live out and share the good news, that the good news will cross any and every barrier. And that's what we're going to see 
in two situations, Philip's ministry into Samaria and a guy named Simon, the magician, and his ministry to a guy from Ethiopia, Ethiopian secretary of the treasury, we'll call him. All right, so grab your Bible. We're in the book of Acts. We're going to pick up the story in verse 9. Acts is the fifth book in. You can see it. It's just towards the back end of the New Testament here. If you need to use the table of contents, feel free. So um, I gave a little challenge to the 9 o'clock, and I feel like I would be leaving you out if I didn't give you one too. So if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles at the tables, and just take it home. Our goal on a weekend is, is I'm explaining Acts chapter 8 that you have more confidence to read your Bible during the week and understand what God is saying that you might grow to love him more and be better positioned to love your neighbor this week, okay? So get a Bible in front of you, and you want to make sure who's ever teaching, whenever you're listening to it, that it's connected to God's Word. So check, check it out. Check me out, all right, as you get into the Word this morning. So in uh, verse 9, we've, we didn't read it, but I can just give you the cliff notes if you're still turning there. Philip's gone to Samaria. That's like a big deal. We'll talk about that in a second. He's gone to Samaria. He's preaching. He's doing all kinds of miracles. Paralyzed, lame people are walking. Demons are shrieking as they're cast out. These oppressive demons connected to the devil and his minions. They're being cast out in the name of Jesus. These people are being released from that. And people are believing the message. And it says at the end of verse 8, there's great joy and rejoicing in the city. Now we turn to the one guy in that city named Simon the Sorcerer. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. That title is likely... Uh, giving us a sense that they think this guy has divine powers. Maybe they're treating him as some kind of a God. All right? The great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time. Not with his message, but with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, so he's teaching, right, the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere he went, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, the scene shifts back to headquarters in Jerusalem. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria because they're going, really? Is this possible? I know Jesus said to all the nations, but did did he really mean the Samaritans? When they arrived, that would be Peter and John, up in the city in Samaria, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right. So the gospel is scattering and it's crossing boundaries. And the first boundary we come up to is Samaria and the Samaritans. So let me give you the cliff notes on this deep-seated hatred that by Jesus' day is over a thousand years in duration. So what happened a thousand years before Jesus? David's son Solomon didn't live a God-honoring life. God said, Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. 
Remember what happens? There's 10 of the tribes that become the northern kingdom. They set up their own king, and that king ruled in a place called Samaria. They got their own king. In the 700s, the 8th century B.C., the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom, this guy named Sennacherib, and he carries out many of the people from the northern ten tribes, and he takes them off to Assyria, and he repopulates that same ge geographical area with these other people who were not Jewish and who did not worship Jehovah God. And they married, and they worshiped these crazy other gods and there was great compromise. There was no longer ethnic purity. There was definitely not religious. So there's been a political break. There's an ethnic break. There is a religious break. When Ezra and Nehemiah come back in the 6th century in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the temple, they say, no, you're not going to help us, Samaritans. We want nothing to do with you. And the Samaritans, a couple centuries later, go, well, then we're just going to build our own temple. And they build their own temple in on Mount Gerizim, and they actually have their own scriptures. So the only scriptures they hold in common is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They reject all the prophets, all the writings, all the history. And so there's like huge divide. That's why it was a huge deal that Jesus goes into Samaria and is actually talking to a Samaritan woman. Remember that? And that whole city meets Jesus and is changed by that. A typical Jew that was serious about honoring God and remaining pure before God would not travel into Samaria. If they were heading up north, they'd go around that small area called Samaria. They wouldn't step foot in it. They were hated. It's deep-seated. But we meet a guy named Philip. His name reminds us, he's not, it's not a Hebrew name. He's a Gentile, but he's a Gentile who loves Jesus. And he's been changed and ravaged in all the best sense of that word by the grace of God. And he, as a Gentile, has experienced the, the intentions of God's missionary heart from the very beginning when he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family, so that through your family, all the families of the world will be blessed. He's received that grace, and he is willing to do what most of the early leaders would not do. Remember, when we catch up with Peter, it took God giving him the revelation of a sheet full of all this unclean food, all the things that he wasn't supposed to eat as a good Jew, and God had to give him that vision so that he could actually have an encounter with a guy named Cornelius to share. It just wasn't on their map to go, okay, who wants to go to Samaria? I don't know. Phil, Philip's, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I mean, there, there, there's what I just said. It's, it's not in the text, but he, he goes. He goes. The angel sends him up. He's led by the Spirit, and he's going to Samaria. And he meets in the context of this city where many believed, having seen the miracles, which gave attestation that this man and what he's saying is true, and they believe it, and there's great joy. And one of these guys is Simon the magician, who's, who's not like this kind of, he, he's, he's connected with a lot of darkness. They attributed him 
to the power of God. The Bible is clear. There's supernatural power, but not all power is equal, and it, all, it is not all derived from the same one. It, it's not just from God. You see something miraculous, don't conclude that's got to be God. From the very beginning, when Pharaoh's magicians are mirroring the, the, the miracles of Moses, we understand the devil and his minions can do supernatural things. And so they think it's of God. It's not of God. So here's his response, Simon's response. Like many in that city whose name we don't know, he hears the gospel. It says he believes it, and he says he's baptized. And he hangs out with Philip because he's blown away, the text says, in verse 13, with the miracles that he's doing. He's a guy that traffics in the miraculous, right? He does amazing things. He had amazing power, and he held sway in the people's minds and hearts, and that was his stature. It was all about this magical power that he had and could do that brought him to that place. Now he's heard the message, he's responded, he's been baptized, and the text says he's hanging around this guy who's doing all these miracles, right? So then the story takes a turn, and somehow the word gets back to headquarters. They hear about the Samaritans, and they're going, wow, I know Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, but we weren't, we weren't thinking like he was serious about the Samaritan part. Really? People are hearing the gospel, and they're believing the gospel, and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Peter and John you got to go check this out. Is this really true? Is this some fanciful rumor that's spreading? we gotta, we got to chase this thing down. You guys go. And so they go. And when they get there, they, they find out, yep, they believed. Check. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins? Yep. Boom. Have you been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yep. Check. Good. Baptized. So have, have you had an experience? Now, remember, this is this unique. Well, one of the things we got to catch up with the book of Acts is this is unique time in the history of God's mission. One of the things that's unique is everybody now is receiving the Spirit instead of just a few people for a special purpose in God's overarching plan. Everybody's receiving the Spirit. And as they're receiving the Spirit, it actually was objectifiable. So the first time they're receiving the Spirit is on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it says, and there were like because like is the only thing they could say. It wasn't really, but it was kind of like, like, it's kind of weird, but they were like tongues that were on fire, and they were coming down on people. But then we heard them speak in languages that they don't know about the wonders of God so that other people heard about God and believed in God. It was visible. It was, it was objectifiable. And he's asking, so do, do, you, do you guys have any manifestation of the Spirit? What are you talking about? No, we don't have that. He said, well, we're going to take care of that right now. Father God, we just pray that you would send your spirit now on these, your new believers, and they receive the spirit. So now this raises like a big question. So why didn't they have the spirit? There's two answers. One is, well, because you don't get the spirit right away. You believe, and then, you know, a time later, some godly person lays their hand on you, and then you get it. So the reason they didn't have the Spirit, the first answer is because that's normal. There's this two-stage process. And we're going to see this in the book of Acts. Now, there's another way you can answer it. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is unusual. There's a lot going on here in the book of Acts. 
one of the fundamental sea changes that's going on is the gospel is moving from uh, reaching Jews to now going beyond Jews from the Samaritans to the Gentiles. And, and God just put the pause on the gift of the Spirit that normally accompanies a person's profession of faith and trust in Christ, whereby they receive the Spirit, they receive the work of the Spirit that applies the work of Christ so that we're forgiven, we're given new life, we go from being dead, Ephesians 2.1, to being made alive, and it's by faith. It's what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 38, when he said to the people, he said, what, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized. So let me unpack repentance. This is going to be a key concept here. Repentance. If there's a street sign and you hear the word repentance, it's the U-turn. So you see the U-turn? It's usually yellow, right? Like that. Like, right? You got it? Just think U-turn. So it's a change of mind. It leads to a change of direction. Like, I've been living this way. I've been living for these things. I've been worshiping this, trusting this. This is my God. But I'm going, oh, i got to change your mind. That is messing me up, and that is hurting a lot of people. And I thought that was the right way to go. I had a change of mind that's led, led to a change of action. That's the U-turn, all right? It's marked by confession. I'm acknowledging before God that what I was doing was not loving towards him. I was not concerned about him. I was trying to be God of my own life. And I'm owning that. I confess it. And then I have contrition. Contrition is not measured in tears. So the Bible will talk about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow could be completely, unbelievably enveloped in emotion. Lots of tears. But the connection of your emotion is the new change of your circumstance. And you really don't like that, that the word's out on who you really are. You don't really like on how your unfaithfulness has busted up the trust in your marriage and you may lose it all. You don't like what's happening at work when you've been found out for your unethical practices. And so you're um, really sorrowful. But the only thing you're sorrowful for is you got caught in the new set of circumstances that are now destroying your life. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Because worldly sorrow is focused on our circumstances. Godly sorrow is focused on the cross. It connects my sin with the bigger story, and Jesus had to die for that. And that's what I'm sorrowful. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. I'm confessing my sin. I am sorrowful for my sin. And with the help of God, I am committed. I don't want to go that way anymore. And, and, and it's marked with not just a turning from this, but a turning towards. And that's where repentance is sometimes the only word used, sometimes repentance in faith. But re true biblical repentance is not just a turning from, it's always a trusting in. And it's a trusting in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. And Peter said to the people who asked him, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for what? The forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, and wait, and people are going to lay hands on you. So it's describing what happened. It's not prescribing what normally happens. I think this is unusual. And I think God hit the pause on the gift of the Spirit so that Peter and John could connect 
with what God is doing, which they had heard about, and now they need to see it firsthand, that they might go back through the villages of Samaria and preach the gospel, that they might go back and say, even the gospel is changing the hearts of Samaritans. And if it's, if it's for the Samaritans, honestly, who then could it not be for? And so he did it for them. Now, one of the things, last thing on the book of Acts, one of the things we're going to wrestle with, especially in the book of Acts, is, is this describing something that happened, or is it, in describing it, prescribing? It's saying this is how it should always be, and this is what you should always do. And the way you get through that is keep looking at, hey, what does the rest of Scripture say? We're going to know more about it being prescriptive if we run into the teaching in other places. So just thinking about that, does Jesus say anything about receiving the Spirit? Oh, yeah, he does. He has a whole encounter with a guy named Nicodemus. We preached on that a couple weeks ago. And he talks about, hey, Nick, you got to be born again. What are you talking about? I can't be born again. I can't enter again in my mother's womb. He said, I'm not talking about natural birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And he's very clear in John 3 to say this, that being born of the Spirit is all about faith in Jesus. It's faith, faith. So that's why I think they didn't have the spirit. I don't think it's normative and normal. I think it's unusual, and hence it's describing what happened, not saying this is how it happens. One last thing on that. The Bible talks about conversion where we, and this is the language of the Bible. It says in Ephesians 2.1, before God's grace... We are spiritually dead. We're dead. We're dead in our trespasses in sin. That's what sin does. It separates. It's our choice to do life without God. And so we're dead. The gospel brings us and makes us alive. And the gospel is clear. It's by faith. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says this, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, your salvation and the gift of God, this grace, this faith is a gift of God. It is not a result of works that no one should boast. And so when you believe in Christ, you were made alive through the Spirit. You move from death to life. And so the idea and, and how we're made alive is we have Christ's Spirit in us. We have spiritual life, and it's all about the Spirit in us. So the idea, we could believe and be baptized and not be alive and not have the Spirit, it just doesn't logically hold with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. All right. You didn't know you were going to a little theology class this morning. but All right, so back to Simon. So Simon, Simon believes. And he's baptized. And all of a sudden, we find out that there could be bogus belief and bogus baptism. And there could be something that actually isn't saving faith. So he's blown away by something that happens when Peter and John show up and they lay hands. And now there's this manifestation of the Spirit. Luke doesn't describe it. But there is something visible where he, I mean, it's not like, and Lord, pray that they receive the Spirit and nothing happened. No, something happened so that Peter and John knew they received the Spirit, and they knew they received the Spirit, and Simon knew they 
And now he's going, man, I sure like Philip's bag of tricks, but this is a trick I got to get a hold of. I got to get this one into my arsenal. So here's what we read about Simon and how his, his bogus faith is exposed. When si- so verse 18, when Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. What do you mean his heart's not right before God? It just told us that he believed it was baptized. It's not about words alone. It's about our heart. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So I'm always saying, when we're reading the Bible, we're looking for surprises. This is a big surprise. Like, I wasn't expecting this. It just said many people from this Samaritan city believed, were baptized, and it says there is great joy in the city. And so we're thinking, Simon, he believed. Simon, he was baptized. We're thinking, he's going to be full of joy too. And we find out, oh, he's not. In a passage that begins with a city full of joy and ends with an Ethiopian who goes on his way rejoicing, you got this man in the middle who seemingly did the right things, but his heart is messed up. It's not right with God. It's full of bitter jealousy. He wants the power of God in the gospel for selfish gain, and he's unwilling to meet the demands of the gospel. And we know that because Peter says, your heart's not right, and the reason it's full of wickedness and sin is because you haven't repented and given that all to Jesus Christ and been forgiven for all that. So repent. And, he, and, he, and wouldn't it be great if we read, and so Simon fell at the apostles' feet, and he prayed with these these just earnest cries of confession and repentance and praying for God's help and mercy. And he joined the men and was a mighty apostle for God. What does it say? It says, you guys, I'm so freaked out by what you said. Dudes, would you just like pray for me big time? It's like, this doesn't happen by proxy, Simon. You may have been able to mediate supernatural powers on behalf of others. That's not how God meters out his grace. It's one at a time as we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need for mercy and forgiveness and acknowledge that we're living for ourselves. He wants power. What does he want power for? Because everything we know about this guy that Lutz told us is power gave him position in society. And he's lost that because of Philip. That's why he's hanging out with Philip. And now he wants what Peter and John have done so he can reestablish. He's not about the glory of God. He hasn't changed at all, even though apparently he has. Because he said, you know, if they raise hand, yeah, I believe. He got baptized. Everybody saw him. So, like, this is, like, huge stuff. So we could go, all right, I believe. Yeah, 
totally, I believe. I believe Jesus is God's son who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I believe. Check. I was baptized. Man, I really got this covered. My parents did it first. And then I read the Bible and I thought maybe I should too. So two times baptized. Check, check. I'm good. I'm good. And all of a sudden we find out you, you could do those. You could say yes, yes, check, check. And it could be said of me, it could be said of you, our hearts aren't right before God. Now here's the tricky thing about trying to figure this thing out. The Bible says the heart is deceptive beyond all things who can know it? And that is, how can I know where my heart is before God? Well, here's one of the things I can tell you. This is what God does. The Spirit is always working with the Word. So right now, the Spirit is going to take the truth of this Word, which is saying you could profess faith, you could be baptized, and your heart is still not right with you. And the Spirit could be going right now, leaning into your heart and going, and that's true for you right now but I'm saying it because I love you. It's not right. It's not right. You, you have gotten into this relationship with me and you're brokering the deal for your greater good. And it's not about that. You've got to turn from all of that because you're still living for yourself. And I don't know how to ferret it out, but I know there's one key thing in the text that will help us. What we know about Simon is he's gripped and ruled by bitter jealousy, it says. And I say fear. Guys, man, just pray for me. Pray for me that this stuff doesn't happen to me that you said could happen. Pray for me. So, okay, so then we ask. So is there a lot of bitter jealousy? How would I know? Well, you're not content with where you are in life. You're not content in the place God has you. You keep looking at other people wishing that was my life. Bitter jealousy, fear. I, think, I don't think I need to unpack that. And there's a really a big difference, isn't there? When you think about days and periods of your life that were marked by joy and fear, like this is a huge opportunity for us to see things that are so hard to see and they make an eternal difference. Do we have God's joy? Are we ruled? by fear. Have we repented? And biblically, do we keep on turning away and turning to Jesus Christ? There's a second story. It's the guy from Africa, the Ethiopian. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road. So an angel appears. He looks like a man, but he's an angel, and he gives him a message because angel means messenger. Here's what he's saying. Go south of the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It wasn't like, hey, could you head around the corner of the marketplace here in Jerusalem? There's somebody I want you to talk to. This is like inconvenient. This is 50, 60 miles away, heading to the west towards the Mediterranean where Gaza is situated along the sea. So he started out, that is Philip, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. So eunuch is a, a male who's been castrated, usually for the service of a king, oftentimes because he had opportunity to be proximate to the harem. 
So he's a eunuch. He's from Ethiopia, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So honestly, he's the secretary of the treasury for Ethiopia. This poor guy, we keep calling him the Ethiopian eunuch. So he'd prefer that we call him Mr. Secretary. (laughs) He's got a noble position. He controls the coffers of the queen of Ethiopia, okay? Respected man. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Oh, I love that. Go and stay near it. So the message from the angel was clear. I think it was audible. This impression, this leading of the Spirit, it may have been audible, or it might just have been as he's going down the road, he sees this guy who's reading a scroll. It sure looks like Scripture, and he's got this clear sense in his own heart. I need to go to that guy and hang out with him. In either case, we know it was the Spirit and his sensitivity to the Spirit, so that in verse 30 it says, He ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet And he says, do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. And the Ethiopian says, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come in and sit with him in his chariot. So the Ethiopian, this man of position, this man of power, this man of the upper class in his own country, this man who is acquainted with the Jewish scriptures. And I don't think there's any surprise that he's got a scroll that would have Isaiah 53. Because if you've been going through the Old Testament reading plan this week, we're in this very section. And right after Isaiah 53, a couple pages later, you read about eunuchs who are going to be included in the kingdom. And somewhere along the line, somebody must have said, you're a eunuch from Ethiopia? Well, God has a good word for you in Isaiah's prophecy. And he says, i got to buy that scroll. So he's got that scroll, and he's reading in Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is all about the sufferings of Christ, the one who was pierced and wounded for our transgressions, that we might know God's peace this man who was crushed so that we could be freed from the curse of God. He's reading it, but he doesn't know what's going on. And it says right there in the text, verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news. That is, shared the gospel about Jesus, starting in Isaiah 53. And he says, hey, tell me, is this the Isaiah talking about Isaiah? Or is he talking about some other dude? And Philip says, he's talking about somebody else. He's talking about this promised Messiah, this anointed king who's going to set up God's kingdom, this one who's going to bring blessing to all the nations, to all the families, to your nation and to your families, Mr. Secretary. And he came. This promised Messiah came, and he was born in obscurity, and he lived in poverty, and he fled from, from Herod as a refugee. 
down to Egypt, to Africa, to your part of the world. And he came back and he lived a perfect life. And he preached about the kingdom of God and how one could be made right with God. And then he was crucified, wrongly accused, bogus trial, the religious leaders and, and Pilate, the Roman leadership. And they crucified him and he was buried. But three days later, he rose again. And I've, Philip, I don't, we don't know this for sure, but very likely Philip was one of the 500 who had seen the resurrected Christ. And if he didn't say, and I've seen him, he'd say, and I know people who saw him. And I know people who put their hands in the wounds in his hands and in the side. And this man who was uh, raised from the dead, he gave us marching orders to take the gospel and make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have every reason to believe that he received the word and was told about God's heart for the nations and actually about baptism because verse 36 says this. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, this isn't in the original, but it could have been, right? And then Philip said, well, you just don't understand. Like, we don't baptize anybody too quick. Because we want to make sure it sticks. <laughs> and so, you know, we're just going to watch you for a little bit. We got some books we want to read. We got a bunch of classes. And want to watch, got to read some DVDs, fill out the, you know, a couple, couple tests, pretty intensive interview, and then, um, and then we can talk. That's not what it says. He says, What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And obviously the answer was nothing. You believe? You should get baptized. That's normal. That's the normal way of things in the New Testament. Now, I know some of us were baptized as children, and I know some of those traditions were uh, you baptize your child to save them. I, I feel very confident saying that is not biblical teaching. Biblical teaching is we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Some of our parents didn't think it was salvific. We got baptized, and later on you had an opportunity to stand before your church family, a confirmation, and profess publicly that you are a follower of Christ, and you are trusting in him and wanting to live for him every day of your life. But there's a bunch of us that just ought to just consider this and be very sensitive to the Spirit, even as he applies the Word of God, which is what the Spirit is always doing. He's going, do I, do I need to be baptized? Because there's a whole bunch of us who've never done that, or we did it as a child, but we're not even sure what the construct was. And right now, just be sensitive. Is the Spirit saying, hey, get, get baptized. Get baptized. Irina was saying, oh, I still remember that. I remember that night. I remember so well that night in college when I stood before the church family that I grew up in at Winneka Bible Church and Pastor John Wharton baptized me and before he did, he looked at me square in the eyes and he said, quoting uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work for God is never in vain. I, I always remember that. And how I stood before my family and friends to say, I'm serious as a Christ follower. And he's, he's got my whole life. I want to serve him. So this isn't something, look, it's not something you've got to be baptized to be a member of Door Creek. You don't. You don't have to be baptized to be a member of God's family. It's not a matter of salvation. How do I know that? Because the thief on the cross didn't get baptized. And Jesus said, 
dude, I am so sorry. Man, if we could just find some water and get off this cross, we could take care of it. <laughs> he said, today. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not a matter of salvation, and I don't want to guilt anybody. This is like we run into God's best when we follow his word. Why wouldn't you want that? This is for you. This is for us as a church that we see dozens and hundreds regularly going, I love Jesus. He changed my life. And as I go in the waters, I'm remembering the one that went into the grave and he was raised to new life. And I'm dying to myself as I identify with him. And I'm going to live for him with all that I have by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. Amen? All right. So sign up. Okay, so Philip, you know, we, I, I just, I've missed Philip. I've just missed him, missed him, missed him, missed him all my life. And like, this guy's a stud. What, what he did, you guys, to cross these barriers is huge. It's just huge. So the Samaritan barrier, that was huge. I, I've already explained it. The African barrier, the racial barrier, that's huge. And we honor for that, him for that. And we note that people who are filled with the Spirit, commissioned with the gospel, cross barriers. And what are the principles that we have here from chapter 8? Four of them that ought to mark our joyful witness as we share and live the good news, one of our core values. Number one, trust in the power of God and his word to do its work to bring people to faith, trust in the power of God, that God would be placing people in our lives that we would be able to impact for Christ and that our testimony as we point to Christ will bring about change. Number two, be sensitive to the Spirit. Don't, don't look for a voice or something written in the, in the heavens. Just be sensitive. Be full of the Spirit, which means you're in the Word you're communing with God. Your life is right before him. You've confessed your sin. You're doing this regularly. And so you, you, you have your spiritual antenna up and you sense when God, and don't weird out the people by saying, I feel like God's telling me to, don't do that. Just move towards them, right? He moves and he stays. And somebody right now in your life, God's asking you to move towards them and to stay near them. I love you to write down that name. The third principle, focus the conversation on Jesus. Use questions. Focus the conversation on Jesus, especially at the cross. Use questions. Questions are disarming. Questions actually set up a dialogue. Listen. Listen. Ask questions. Keep the conversations focused on Jesus. And finally, Call people to respond. Understand there's a difference between what the gospel is and what the response to the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus. The response to the gospel is how I need to interact with that good news. I got to repent. I got to believe. So, a couple applications. First, for our church. If the gospel crosses any and every barrier, racial, social, gender, class, education, ethnic, anything, any and every barrier. If the gospel crosses all the barriers, and if it is the very good news, 
that makes us all members of his family. If we are Christ's church, then we ought to what? Cross those barriers with our confidence in the love of God in his son Jesus Christ to reach all kinds of different people. So we say it's our desire to be a Christ-centered church for all people where the power of the gospel is continually transforming lives, renewing our city, and changing the world. So here's what I know. If we're serious about this, if it's ever going to happen, it's not going to happen without opposition and expect it from within, right here. Like, oh, I don't know, not those people, not that kind. Expect it here. Expect it will never get further as a church than we are collectively as individuals, right? We, we, we need to cross the barriers. We need to welcome those as equal partners in the gospel, brothers and sisters. He's got children. He doesn't have grandchildren. He doesn't have cousins. He doesn't have aunties and uncles that really ain't aunties and uncles. He's got children. And all of God's children, black, white, yellow, rich, poor, keep going, young, old, men, women, all God's children stand on the same level ground before the cross. And so we cannot fall prey to Acts chapter 6 where we've got these widows, the Jewish, that's my people, that's what I'm talking about, taking care of my own. And then they're, yeah, God, yeah, whatever. Let them people take care of them people. Mm-mm. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's harder than it's easier. The prejudices are there and we don't quite see them. But the power of the Spirit in us will keep moving us through, keep moving us through, keep moving us through. Last thing. I, I just want to make sure that you are sure when you hit the pillow that your heart is right before God. I want you to double check why you came today. Seriously. Why why'd you come? You could have done a whole I mean like sleeping in, that would have been nice. Why'd you come? Why do you call yourself what you call yourself? Why did you do? Why are you doing what you do? Is it still for you? Or is it, is it not that anymore? To, to know, is this this fear thing got a hold of my life? Or, or is it bitter jealousy? Or do I actually know joy? Joy. Contentment even in hard place circumstances. God help us to receive. God help us to scatter with his word until he comes. Let's pray. Lead us with your spirit, Lord, according to this gracious gospel that is for all people. Lead us boldly as a church. Help us to honor you and how we do that. Father, show us our hearts as only you can and fill us with joy 
that is rooted in your unconditional love for us in Jesus. And then show us again, Lord, who it is that you've placed us in our lives. And may we be willing to go, to stay near, and to keep pointing people to Christ. For your honor and glory, for the good of the world that you love so dearly, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.